From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and you know where we're going to go this time? We're going to go to the heart of language. We're going down into the real deal. What language really is, which, as you know, is in so many ways different from what we naturally think of it as being, partly because of the artificiality of what it looks like in its written form. What's the heart of language? What distinguishes human language from the ways that animals communicate? Well, for one thing, we have words. We have symbols for you know something like a rose. And I'm just going to bypass that because that's fairly obvious. We all think of our language primarily as being a collection of words. But what else? Because the words alone, you know, just a dictionary in your head wouldn't allow you to be a person. There's more. Well, one thing that's the heart of human communication is shared attention. The sheer fact that we actually pay attention to one another waiting for communication to take place. If you think about it, as sophisticated as a cat can seem because of superficialities, you ever notice that they don't look at one another waiting for communication other than for certain basic primitives like get away from me or let's have sex. Other than that, They're not waiting for a message, and that's also true of dogs. And dogs mentally are more sophisticated than cats. I know I'm going to hear from people about that, but I'll just lay that out there. And yet, dogs don't look one another in the eye waiting for communication about things other than get away from me or, you know, let's have sex. Basically, notice that if it's going to be anything a little more sophisticated, it seems like what they do is look at one another's butts. It's not like human communication. So that shared attention. And closely related to that is theory of mind, as in having a sense of how other people are thinking is different from what you might be thinking. That's one of the key elements in what human communication is. Then there's what linguists call syntax, which I think in the real world maybe comes out better as word order. And I discussed that a little bit in the last show. This is things like you say, what do you have in your hand instead of you have in your hand what, which actually would make more logical sense. The what moves, so to speak. That's syntax. And all human languages have that and rules about that. And that has nothing to do with the way, for example, a very mentally sophisticated ape might communicate in sign. We've got syntax. And then, especially, and this is going to be what we hit on today, we have displacement. So language is about not just what's happening now, or not just what's going to happen so quickly after now that it might as well be now. So give me a banana. Or, you know, (laughs) one more time, let's have sex or something like that. Not just now, but how about before? Talk about something that happened before or talk about something later. But especially before, there is an idea that language would have arisen, would have been driven in terms of evolution based on being able to communicate about the past. And so it would be something like, I saw a dead elephant a mile away from here and I want us all to gather together and go get it so that we can survive. Something like that. The elephant was. You can talk about that dead elephant. So it may have been about talking about the past for survival, but then piggybacking on that, and maybe even as helpful as that, is being able to talk about that which will be or that which might be. And those run into each other. But what about, in other words, the future? So, you know, a cat may have various feelings, but does the cat think about the future? 
I, for one, doubt it. But even if they do, what you get from the cat in terms of communication is that's really all there is. Or even parrots. You know, parrots seem like they're little human beings and they can be linguistically very sophisticated. They seem to know what they're saying when they say thank you. But are they thinking about the future? Like, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow? Ah! You can tell that's not really what's going on with them. We've got the future. We've got the not yet. We've got the could be. How does human language handle that? It's part of why human language is really cool. It's part of why we're doing more than we have something more sophisticated than they have. And part of it is in the displacement. And a subset of that is that we can talk about the not yet and the could be. Languages do funny things with that. So, for example, here's something that from English seems really annoying. I mean, it's it's fun, but it's annoying about many European languages. And so, I hope he goes, we say in English, and so I hope he goes. But if you're learning Spanish, then you learn that you don't just say, I hope he goes, you have to do something to go. And so, espero que I hope he, espero que va, that's what it should be, goes. And, you know, people will understand what you said, but it's espero que vaya. You have to use this different form, and it's what we're taught to call the subjunctive form. If you are somebody who has French rather than Spanish, it's the same thing. So, so that, so that he'll go. So that, so that he, so that he'll go. No, which is one, ugly. French, I love you, but it's different. Like, why you have to have that different form of to go? What the hell is that? That is about hypotheticality. So it's not just some mean thing that romance languages do to you. It's that languages have ways of indicating the hypothetical, and they tend to get a little picky about it. So language isn't only about, say, past tense, future tense. It isn't only about whether there's more than one thing. It's also about truth. Languages are obsessive about whether or not something is true, which makes sense if you think about it, because why would this have evolved? Why would we be able to do this? Well, part of it would be that there's a certain advantage in being able to communicate whether something is real or not, especially if it's about food and survival. So we're told that in English we don't have a subjunctive, but that's not really true. There are ways that we do it, and especially there are ways that we used to do it that were clearer. Now there are marginal constructions that you get taught on a blackboard and probably don't use in your casual life. And so if it be possible that to use be in that way, if it is possible, there's your indicative. If it be possible is the oldie way of being subjunctive. Or, you know, if I was a rich man, which is the way I think I would spontaneously put it in many cases. If I was a rich man, I would. But no, it's if I were a rich man. I am sure that Sheldon Harnick, the lyricist of Fiddler on the Roof, probably thought about that. He had a pencil. He went into a grammar book to decide what he was going to do there. The actual Tevya, if he spoke English, would have said if I was a rich man, given his demographic, etc. But if I were a rich man, that's you know, quote unquote proper English. It's because that's a remnant of our subjunctive. But we have a more robust and living subjunctive, actually, and it's in our modal verbs. And you can think of them as moodle. That's kind of what it should be. They convey various moods in the grammatical sense, but that carries over into our sense of what 
mood is. And so we're thinking about things like potential. I can. We're thinking about things like permission. You may. All of these moods. And the moodal verbs, we could call them that, are, for example, can, could, may, might. You know this area? Shall, should, will, would, then must just kind of hangs on there. It doesn't have a quote-unquote past form. But the thing is that these moodles are what we use to convey the subjunctive. If a Martian grammarian looked at English and they were waiting for a subjunctive, they would find it there, not in some special endings that we have, but there. And so even with something like can, we think of can as being I can swim, I can speak Persian, or something like that. But you can use can in a way that actually means something subtler than that. So for example, here's here's something. If it's sunny, then we can try to think of some new way to get there. There's a sentence. So we can try to think of some new way to get there. Now, technically, you're saying if it's sunny, then we are able to think of some new way to get there. But in a way, what you're really saying is if it's sunny, then we will hypothetically be in a position to think of some new way to get there. It basically just means if then. So if it's sunny, then we try to think of some new way to get there doesn't really mean are able. It's kind of marking that if the conditions are right, then it could be that. So we get a subjunctive from these moodle verbs. And there's a specific pathway that has happened throughout the history of English to ensure this. It's as if English is trying to have a subjunctive because we don't have those sorts of dedicated, as we put it, endings for doing it that the Romance languages can take advantage of. And so the evolution has been from moodle verbs referring to what you have to do, to duty, to somebody putting their finger in your face to being about possibility, something more abstract. It's happened again and again, from duty to possibility. So, for example, you must go downstairs because I need to smoke a cigarette or something like that. You must point the finger in the face. Must starts out like that. It's about duty. Then it becomes about something more abstract. That must be the pizza. That must be the pizza doesn't mean if that isn't the pizza, I'm going to beat somebody or something like that. It means, hmm, probably that's the pizza. And so it starts out as, well, it absolutely has to be the pizza. And then pretty soon it just means, oh, that must be the pizza. I'll go check. So you go from finger in the face to a hypothetical or may. You may wear your patent leather shoes tonight to the ball instead of sneakers. I don't know what that is, but you get my point. Then may becomes about possibility. This may be the big day. That happens again and again. For those of you who happen to think that's neat, what I'm talking about, if you want to look it up, is the evolution from deontic to epistemic. Boy, those are cruel terms. Deontic is the finger in the face. Epistemic is about possibility. I remember when I was first learning about linguistics, there were some students who knew those terms earlier than I did, and they would casually toss them around. And I used to think, you know, you're making me feel left out. I remember one of them was always saying, epistemicity, mm -hmm. epistemicity. And I was thinking, fucking what? So deontic and epistemic. A language wants it. It's really interesting to see how languages want to have certain things. And it's not always the things you think. A language does not achingly want to mark the plural every time it could. But this business of getting the hypothetical in, it's interesting. I don't know how romance came up with what it did. I don't know why Latin has these 
endings that are usually the endings from the other kind of verb. And so, for example, you know, ablo, I'm talking able, subjunctive, and that's actually from the ER verbs. I don't know how that happened. I'm going to check. Somebody remind me, but a language wants to have it. And so you have these Moodle verbs. And you can even see, there's even a little more, you can see how they have their roots in hypotheticalness, in that there's something polite about how they emerged. If you look at the Moodle verbs, they're a little weird in terms of how they go through their paces and get used in sentences. So, for example, I speak, you speak, he, she, it speaks. So a normal verb in English has that weird S thing in the third person singular. Okay. But I can, you can, he, she, it, can. There is no cans, no such thing. Or something like I should, you should, he shoulds. No, certainly not. They don't have that. They're defective in that way. Or something like I know, you know, she knows. I would like to know. I would like to walk. I would like to buy some aquarium fish, etc. But notice there's no such thing as I would like to can. I would like to would. That's not the way it works. These verbs are defective. And what it is, is that they started out as past tense forms. And now we think of them as present. But in English, in the past tense, you don't have that. And so I chopped, you chopped, he, she, it chopped. There's no chops. And so the reason that you have she, should is because those started out as past tense forms, and what would have been going on there, and we can't go back and ask people why, but what would have been going on is that you were putting things in the past to soften them, to make them more polite. And so you walk up to the cash register and you say, I wondered if I could have a receipt, wondered, and you're sitting there wondering right now, when you displace it, so to speak, into the past, you're softening it. The waiter comes up and says, ooh, are you thinking about having dessert? Well, why would you have only been thinking about it in the past? Because if you wanted it then, did you stop wanting the peach jello right now? No, you you want it now. You put it into the past because it's a little pushy in our language, in our ethos, perhaps, to say. So, do you want dessert? Damn it. No, you say, did you want dessert? And let it just be implied that this desire continued into the present. So, we do have a subjunctive. We just do it differently. In any case, it's time for a song, and I find myself thinking of Tracy Ullman, of all things. Tracy Ullman started out in the American consciousness with her own truly delightful and ahead-of-its-time variety show. It was one of Fox's first shows. I remember it as clear as day, 1987. It would play beautifully today, I imagine, and it had a really bizarre little theme song. It was a little hard to understand the words of it, just like with good times. But it also had a beautiful example of Moodles. Listen to this real quick. music 
because that was kind of short and odd. For this show, it's going to be all about Steely Dan. And the reason is because I just got finished watching a documentary that's on Amazon Prime about the making of their wonderful album, Asia. And it got me into a Dan mood. So just some Dan selections. I promise I will not do them again for a long time after this show, for those of you who don't like them. But this is pretzel logic. This is what those guys could do with a blues. I would love to tour the Southland traveling mistral show Yes, I'd love to tour the Southland in a traveling mistral show Yes, I'm down to be a star and make them laugh Sound just like a record on a phonograph Those days are gone forever Over You know, it's funny, Donald Fagan, yeah, I say this with great love for every single thing they've ever recorded, but Donald Fagan has kind of a an ugly voice, that kind of twisted, constricted voice. So you think, well, okay, but then again, who else would you want to have on these tracks? What other singer could sing the Steely Dan song? It's all very sui generis. never met Napoleon, but I plan to find the time. Yes, I do. Cause he looked so fine Up on that hill They tell me he was lonely He's lonely still Those days are gone forever Over a long time ago So, hypothetical. Now we can get to just future, which is, in its way, a shade of that. In languages, in terms of what languages want to have, I'm pretty sure that any language has a way of indicating the hypothetical. I can't know absolutely, but it would be inhuman for a language not to be able to do that in some way. However, languages are very happy not to do with a straight-up future. It seems so elementary to us thinking about past, present, future. Language does not have to have a particular way of indicating futurity. There's always some way to do it, but in terms of there being grammatical machinery that you would learn as how to put a verb into the future, no, not necessarily. In fact, not having a future is more likely than not having a past. So there are languages where there's no particular way to indicate the past and you have to kind of work around it. I am right now thinking of two. I can only think of two. I'm just one person. I'm one linguist. One of them is Mandarin and one of them is a West African language called Ewe. But those are the only two I can think of. But in terms of languages that don't have a dedicated way of indicating the future, my mind is overflowing. That is quite quite normal. And one of those languages actually is my beloved Russian. One of the weirdest things about learning Russian is that you know, it's such a busy language compared to English. And it's got all this gender. It's got all this stuff with the past. Don't even get me into that. And you're thinking, well, this language is just pickier about stuff. And so you're waiting for there to be a series of endings that are for putting a verb into the future, period. You're waiting for it to be something like Latin. And it somehow just never happens. You're waiting and waiting, and after a while, you realize that there is no one way to make a verb future in Russian. It's a weird business. You just learn things like, so, yapisal, I was writing over time. And so then, 
ja napisal. So na, that means I wrote it down. Like, okay. Then this na thing also has that same flavor with, damn it, write it down. Napishi. So do it right now and you just write it down. But then I will write, ask somebody how to say that, napishu. Napishu. Well, first we have this napisal meaning I wrote it down like I scribbled it. Napishi is, damn you, write it down, hurry up. Then napishu is I will write. It's a funny thing and roughly kind of makes sense if you think of it as I will get up and start writing. But obviously it's just that the language has taken material and used it for different things. There's no one way. That na is not how to make something future. There are all sorts of things you can do with that. And some of you who know Russian are thinking, yeah, but what about budu? So, you know, I will write. Ya budu pisats. Right. But that means I will be writing, not just I will write. So ask ask a Slav, a, a speaker of a Slavic language. Ask any one of them but Melania Trump, because <laughs> she speaks Slovenian. Well, her and you know the other people who speak Slovenian, but that's only so many. Ask most Slavs, okay, so how do you do the future? And they might mention something like the Napishu, but then you say, but I thought that the Na was used for this and that too. And they'll always say, well, yeah, I guess, hmm, yeah. I've seen that with speakers of about five of those languages. It's just that you don't have any one way. Edmund Wilson, the literary critic, he learned some Russian and he noticed that there was no future. It bothered him. And then he noticed that at least the Russians he knew tended to be late. I haven't had that experience, but his Russians were always late. Maybe they were later under communism or something like that. And he said, well, I guess part of the reason that the Russians are never on time is that they don't have a future tense. <laughs> you never know with these things. But Russian just doesn't do it. And as odd as we think that is, you know, English is not really all that different. Russian not having a future makes you think, well, what happened to it? But really, you have to push it further back than that, because that language of Ukraine I'm always talking about that gave birth to most of the languages of Europe and a great many of Iran and India, Proto-Indo-European, if you reconstruct, if you look at all the languages today and trace backwards looking at what they have in common, Proto-Indo-European was a language that did not have a specific set of future tense endings. They were not there. There are different ways that all the languages do it that don't all trace back to any one trait. So that language of Ukraine, they weren't using a set of future tense endings. And so if Latin has that, Latin developed that all by itself. It wasn't an original feature. So what Russian does not have is what Proto-Indo-European didn't have. And even in English. So, for example, we don't have any set of future tense endings. What we have is will. And we're told that that's future. But notice about good old will. So will doesn't have a third person singular s. It's not he wills go to the store. So it's defective in that way. And also notice something with our list of modals, which is that the past tense forms are especially hypothetical. So I can, you can think of that as just ability. I could, that's definitely in the world. She shall if you're going to use that word, she should. That's what will is the same thing. So he will, then he would. Hypothetical. So what will is, is it's another one of these moodles. That's all it is. It's just that will is a moodle that got recruited into indicating the future. It shows that there was no original future material. Will is just kind of filling in. You know something that's annoying? Think about could, would, 
and should. You know, could only has the L in it because some idiot decided it had to have it because would and should do. So would has the L because it comes from will that verb. That's that's fine. Should has it because of shall. Could has it just because of those two and somebody decided that everything had to be nice and tidy. You want to go back and very gently smack that man sweating over a candle who decided that. But you can't smack him because he's dead. In any case, what this means is that English's original lack of a future has all this stuff brought in to take care of it. It's kind of like some company where somebody gets fired really suddenly. And then over the next few weeks, they have various people coming in to do various parts of their job. And then some management consultant comes in five years later and wonders why there are five people all doing these little bits and pieces of something that one person could be doing. That's the English future. And it's something where we often associate foreign command of our language with something like the and a because our articles are so magnificently weird. That's one of the hardest things about English, but also future. If you listen to somebody who speaks English as a second language, they speak it really, really well. One of the last things they might get, something they might do if they're tired, is mess up our future, because our future is truly punishing. And it's really because it's all these people dragged in to do what really should be one job. So, for example, will. The future is will. Well, I suppose, but let's try this. I will buy you some socks. Okay, first of all, do you notice that's not really a sentence? I mean, it's technically a sentence, but when exactly would you say, I will buy you some socks? You have to work to come up with a circumstance where you would be sitting on the couch and say, I will buy you some socks. It's not a sentence at all. More likely is I'll buy you some socks. You've got to contract it. But even there, notice that it has a specific meaning. I'll buy you some socks. It sounds kind of like a result. If you learn how to play the recorder, I'll buy you some socks. There's an if-then to it. So, I'll buy you some socks. Is it the future or is it a very specific aspect of the future? Or how about this? Going to is something else where English has developed something only over about the past 500 years because a language might want to have a future. Might not, but it might. And so I'm going to buy you some socks. But what does that mean? Does it really just mean there's going to be an instance of me buying you socks that takes place in the future? I don't think so. No, it's not that. I'm going to buy you some socks. It sounds kind of therapeutic. You're doing it as a response to some problem. And so something like, oh, look, you've got tick bites all around your ankles. I'm going to buy you some socks. That's what it means. Or you might just not use will, in which case it can be future too. So tomorrow I buy you some socks. Tomorrow I will buy you some socks is a Martian. Tomorrow I buy you some socks. But notice there's a bit of a of a threat in it. It's kind of it's significant. It's kind of like, tomorrow I buy you some socks and then you're going to get circumcised or something like that. It sounds like there's something larger going on. All those shades, those are various ways of indicating futurity and there are various ways that we do it. There's no one marker. So future is a more complicated thing than you might think. A language actually does without it more blithely than we might expect. And what it means is that when languages come up with some kind of future marking, often there's a kind of a hodgepodge air to it. And that's part of what makes language fun. You know what's not fun is when you're in college and you have a big crush on some woman who is 
always very smart and very cultured. And you can tell she likes you too, to a certain extent, but then it turns out she's with this other guy. And he's not quite as sharp as she is, but he is hot and he's hotter than you. Remember that? God, how that hurt. And it hurt so much when you were about 19 or 20. Her name was often Lisa. Well, this is another Dan song. This is Gaucho. And, you know, the synthesizers make it sound really dated to many, but this song so nicely gets across that feeling and more. Just when I say, boy, we can't miss, you are golden, then you do this. You say this guy is so cool, snapping his fingers like a By the way, what English does is actually very universal as languages go. English isn't weird. There are languages that are very picky about how they divide up the future. Sometimes it's just a matter of how much future. And for some reason, a lot of languages of Africa are really big on this. There's a language, I could pick many, but there's a language of Kenya and Tanzania, one of the Bantu languages. Swahili is the, the doggy in the window of these languages, but there are many of them, Zulu and Hosa. And, and this one of Kenya and Tanzania, it's called Logoli, Logoli. And with Logoli, you've got four futures, depending on how much future you mean. And one should just know that there are lots of languages like this. So there's we will buy, then there's a way of saying we will buy a little later. Then there's we will buy like way off. Then there's we will buy like over the rainbow. So kuragura, the guh is buy. Kuragura, it's just we'll, we'll buy. Nakagura, that's we'll buy it a little later. Kurikagura, that's we'll buy it, you know, like two months from now. Then kurigura, as opposed to kuragura, which was we will buy. But kurigura is we will buy it after we're dead, or something like that. So languages just do that. So English has its way, and Logoli has its way. If English were put in the books properly, our future would look more like Logoli's. Slate Plus is a feature where you can get an extra bit of show after the main part, and you don't have to listen to commercials. So it just starts there. You could listen to this podcast. There would be no breaks for commercials done by me or anybody else. And you get an extra little bit, like in older slash lesser <laughs> sitcoms. So you want Slate Plus because for a nominal fee, you can have that. And if you get it, you have that for all of Slate's podcasts, not just mine. 
But more to the point, Slate Plus with that nominal fee really helps out Slate right now. It helps us out right now because, you know, the virus has been tough on media and Slate is media. And there's no danger, but we really could use the extra help right now and for a while after this. This week, for example, if you listen to the extra bit, what I'll tell you is that it's about the relationship between a soda can and a man's uh, fruiting organs. If you want to know what I'm talking about, you've got to sign up for Slate Plus today. There's another bit of this story, this issue of hypotheticality. Hypotheticality can be, for example, subjunctive. It can be future. It can also be about what you could call truth conditions. And this is something that some languages are more explicit about than others. And in this case, it tends to be languages that we think of from English as quote unquote exotic. But this sort of thing is very common in languages. And I would be cheating you if I didn't talk about this during this episode about the maybe as opposed to the definite. And that's something that in linguistics is called evidentials. And what I mean by that is let's go to the Amazon. There's a language called Tuyuka. Tuyuka is fascinating in many ways. And one of them is You can't just say he's chopping trees. You have to add something. If you say he's chopping trees, that means one thing. If you say he's chopping trees, that means another. The difference is he's chopping trees is I hear that he's chopping trees. So he's chopping trees is I see that he's chopping trees. I'm standing there. I'm not just hearing it. If you say he's chopping trees, That means apparently he's chopping trees. Seems like he's chopping trees. Roughly, he must be chopping trees, the way we would put it in English. Then, he's chopping trees. You get That means, well, the rumor is, they say, that he's chopping trees. If you don't use those, you're speaking baby to Yuka. You have to do that, just like we have to put things in the past, just like we have to make things plural. In Tuyuka, you have to indicate what your source of information was. And I kid you not that those endings are different whether you're talking about a man or a woman, and they also change in the plural. So it's this whole battery of of mess that you have to learn. Those are called evidential markers. Some languages take it as far as Tuyuka. Most don't take it that far. And then, as it happens, in languages of Western Europe, it's often we would think of as left to context, or it's done by things that are also used for other things. So we don't think of it as a thing. But evidentiality is a thing. How do you know? And so many of our uses of must are that. You know, that must be the pizza. You know, apparently that's the pizza. Or in many languages, there's even just a marker of realness. It's sobering if you really pull the camera back and think of how much we communicate is about indicating that we really mean it, that it really is true. Although it makes sense if you think about it. That is what language would have evolved for. Part of the package would have to be, can I trust that what you're saying is true if we're going to be dealing with this thing called saying? Because it would be so easy to lie. So language isn't only about then or now or you know single or many, but also true or not. And you never know how it's going to work. There's a language, it's fun to say it, Pingalapese. (laughs) Pingalapese. This is a language spoken in what used to be called the South Seas. And there's this interesting little difference because they have what you would consider a marker of something being real. So Calvin and Brenda, Calvin Deca Brenda, Calvin Deca Brenda, teachers. 
So the way you say that is roughly son padakpui. Son padakpui. By the way, Pingala P speakers or experts, I'm sorry about my pronunciation. I'm trying, but I'm, I know I'm way off. But Calvin, Daka, Brenda. Calvin and Brenda. And then teachers. Son padakpui. Teachers. So one thing you can say is Calvin, Daka, Brenda, eh, son padakpui. So Calvin and Brenda are teachers. And you'd think that the eh must mean is. But there's another sentence. Calvin Daka Brenda a Sampadakpui. Well, Calvin Daka Brenda a Sampadakpui. Calvin Daka Brenda a Sampadakpui. What's, what's the difference? A means that you really mean it, that they definitely are. A leaves more room for doubt, and you can also use it when you're making it a question. So it's a marker of the real. And languages just do this. I was on the train once, and I was listening to this kid. I would put him at 14, and his story was roughly that he and his family thought they had a space rented out to do something in, and instead they got to the space and there was a bar mitzvah being conducted in it. And what he said was roughly, and so we, we went there and we thought we were going to have our party. And then there were all these people in there. They were having like a bar mitzvah. And, and there were like grandparents in there and, and like little kids. And, and they were like doing like recitations. And this was like crazy. Well, you think about all those likes. And no, he did not talk like the pimple-faced teen on The Simpsons. But I don't remember what his voice was actually like. But the likes, so to speak were often markers of reality. What he meant was actual grandparents. There really were kids. It really was a bar mitzvah. It wasn't some sort of virtual bar mitzvah, which has an interesting meaning in our times. But that business of showing that something is really there, something is real, is really central to language. Evidentials are a way that many languages take that and subdivide it magnificently and get really picky about it. I'm ready to Deacon Blues, which is one of the Dan's best, and it just speaks for itself. This is just a beautiful piece of art. My back to the wall, a victim of laughing Bubbly, brand seltzer. That's B-U-B-L-Y. I want to do a little pitch for something. They're not paying us for this, but I am really so tickled by this product that I would like to just mention that it's something you ought to bring into your lives. Bubbly has beautiful cans, and this summer, every weekend I spend with my little girls at our lakeside cabin, we rented one, we savor a different flavor of bubbly, and then when we get home, we put one of the cans on the mantelpiece because they're in these beautiful rainbow colors, and you build out this beautiful swath of color. You know the apple 
Bubbly isn't great. Frankly, they need to punch that one up. But the strawberry tastes like toys. And then there's mango and peach. And yes, it does taste like liquid peach jello. And there's a really interesting blackberry. And the grapefruit just explodes in your mouth. You know, I used to hate seltzer. I wanted it to be soda, but soda kills you. And so I am converted to bubbly. That's B-U-B-L-Y. They put the missing B into an extra burst of flavor. I just wanted to say that. Anyway, I know what some of you are thinking, because I'd be thinking it too, because I started out with these boring Western European languages. And so you're thinking, well, what about the conditional? The conditional, yes, that's a mood too. That's about hypotheticality. And to the extent that we think about the hypothetical, the conditional is what we often think of, in part because Romance languages happen to have a dedicated series of endings for it, and also because we've got our could and our would, that's how we do it. So it feels like a thing in a way that, say, evidentiality doesn't. But conditional is actually one of those things where as often as not, and I actually suspect more often, that's just my guess, a language doesn't have a single way to do that. So a language will have a single way of putting something into the past. It'll have a single plural marker. But what is the single way that a language would say, if I had the tools, I could install this shelf. If I hadn't eaten so much, I wouldn't be so sleepy. If you're learning how a language works, figuring out how to render sentences like that can sometimes be a challenge because there won't be any one way. And even if you think about it, in terms of how English does it, suppose you were making up a language from the ground up. How would you do the conditional? You certainly wouldn't use the past tense of will, would. Think of that archaic expression, he did what he would. And that meant he did what he wanted to do. That's how would starts. Now we think of it as just inherently conditional. But if you were going to come up with a way of saying, I wouldn't be so sleepy, would you really use the past tense of will as in will to power? I don't think so. You never know how a language is going to do it. And one of the neatest things about the conditional is actually something from Creole languages. Creole languages, as I've discussed on this show, are what happens when adults are put into the bizarre and usually tragic situation of only learning bits and pieces of a language and yet having to use that as the lingua franca among one another when they speak different languages to the point that it has to become a new language itself. And they use it over generations. Kids start learning it. And after a while, from this non-language, you have this brand new real language. The non-language is called a pigeon. The real language is called a creole. And there are creoles all over the world. So Jamaican patois started in that way. Haitian creole started in that way. Papiamentu in Aruba, Bonaire, and Curaçao started that way. Cape Vergian Portuguese creole started that way. There are lots of these languages which are new. They're languages that came up from the ashes, so to speak. Now, as I've mentioned on this show, there are people who insist that what I just told you about what Creole languages are is not true. They are <coughs> wrong. Sorry, I don't that controversial. And actually, you know, I'm going to give myself a little plug. The Abra Lin 
series. This is being done in Brazil. They're asking linguists from all over the world to come strut their stuff and make videos that will be up until the end of time. I just did one about how Creole languages form and how fascinating they are. Go look me up on Abralin, A-B-R-A-L-I-N, and you can hear about how Creoles come from pigeons, which is one way, the best way, one way to look at how Creoles come about. But in any case, an interesting thing about Creoles is that when a language starts as a pigeon, when a language starts as somebody having not learned a language and then they build that out into a brand new real language, it's funny how the conditional tends to come out the same way every time. So how would you create a conditional? And our answer is, I don't know. It's so hard to think our way out of that could, would thing that seems so normal to us. Well, with Creole languages, and of course, this is subconscious. Nobody thinks of this deliberately. With Creole languages, when you start with, say, a few hundred words, and then you build it out into a brand new language. Again and again, the conditional uses the same elements, and specifically something like would have been. So for example, in Suriname in South America, there are Creole languages that were formed by slaves who were there working plantations. I've often talked about Saramakan, which is the one that I know the most about. But Sranan is the one that's the lingua franca, the, the vernacular lingua franca of Suriname now. If you want to say, I would have been walking, I is me, walk is waka, would have been is ben sa. Ben sa comes from two things. Ben is from been, as a Canadian might say. Sa is from shall, when shall was used more. And so, ben sa waka. Mi ben sa waka. So it's I ben shall. You combine the past and the future, and that's how they do the conditional. Try to wrap your head around how the conditional is a combination of the past and the future, and you can almost get it. It's like trying to pick up a tomato seed. Now, it's one thing to think, well, okay, that weird thing happened because lightning struck in one Creole. But no, it ends up being that again and again. So in Haitian Creole, the way that you would do that, you're talking about this would have been, it's te and of. And so it's ite, for those of you who know French. And then of comes from va, which is go. And so it's the past and the future again. Haitian and Sranan formed in different places. Nobody knew anybody who was creating the languages in those different places, and yet it came out that way. Go to little islands off in the Gulf of Guinea in Africa, where the Portuguese settled and <laughs> did terrible things, and as was often the result of that happening in the middle of the last millennium, Creole languages formed, plantation Creole languages formed, and four of them are still holding on today. And in one of them, which is called Principense, because it's spoken on an island called Principe, the way that you say, I would have been, as in I would have been going, is you use two little markers. One is ka, one is tava. Ka is, among other things, future. Tava is the past. It's the funniest thing. In Hawaii, what they call pidgin there, it's a Creole language. The way you do would have been is been, go. There are Creoles based on Arabic, believe it or not. Don't have time to tell you the history, but in one of them, called Nubi Creole Arabic, I would have been going. Go is rua. Then the would have been is kan and be. Khan, put something in the past. B, put something in the future. Again and again and again. So there is magic in how languages are born. This is something that was first pointed out by Derek 
Bickerton. And Derek Bickerton was a leading creolist for a long time. And he observed this and he was told that he was wrong. And you know what? On this particular thing, he was pretty much right. And Bickerton and I were <laughs> definitely not on the same page in a lot of ways. And you know, Derek, you were not nice to me in many ways. You know, that man actually told me in a letter, a written letter. This is back in the 90s when I am a new graduate student. I'm so tender and delicate. And he said that I shouldn't try to best him because he would always be the alpha baboon in the field. Well, thank you very much, Derek. But you know what? Now that you're up there and I'm still down here, I'm going to give you this one. You were right about the markers of tense, mode, and aspect in Creoles. Derek, you were right. This is my exploration into the what could be. And there's someone out there who wanted me to do this show. Her wish is my command. And so there it was. And, you know, the latest and I guess maybe it'll be the last Steely Dan album was the peculiar and often marvelous Sunken Condos. And this is, to my mind, the best cut on Sunken Condos. This is Miss Marlene. Just savor it. I don't know how they quite did what they did, but goodness, they always did it so well. Back in double seven, Miss Tam was queen. She could roll like a pro rolls when she was 17. Whether straight or hammer, she was the best in town. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. You know, Bubbly, they also put these little greetings on the tab of the can. The pineapple one says aloha, because pineapples grow in Hawaii. I think that's cute. Anyway, Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I am John McWhorter. That's when you always shine. Forward ride a moonbeam down the inside line. <laughs>